stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. Good morning. Uh, this is Rick Bonfim at uh, Rick Bonfim Ministries. We're glad to be with you this morning. And before I share with you this morning on on Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two wonderful personalities in the Bible, uh, I want to have a prayer with you. Father God, I thank you for this wonderful morning. I thank you, God, that you have set us free to minister to others and to speak the word as we come together. We pray, God, for an outpouring of your spirit all over the world this morning. As, as Christians everywhere, listen to the word in Jesus' name. Amen. Every time I study uh, the scriptures and I find a, a personality that stands out, it encourages me. And today I have two personalities, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Of course, Joseph was from Ramah. It's a, it's a village northwest of Jerusalem, about 20 miles, and a member of the Sanhedrin, and according to Matthew 27, 57, he was a wealthy man on the Jewish community. Also, uh, uh, interesting enough, he did not agree with the decisions of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the governing Jewish body in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And so... Uh, in Luke 23, 50 and 51, it simply says that he was a, a, a personality. He simply spoke his mind and would not go along with the crowd. And of course, what distinguishes this man is that he went to Pilate and requested the body of Jesus. So let me read uh, the scriptures in uh, John chapter 19, 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He was a disciple, but he was secretly serving the Lord. Besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave, permission. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there also came along, or came also, Nicodemus. At first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of mar, a mirror and aloe's oil, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wounded in linen cloths and with spices uh, as the manner of the Jews uh, is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never made men laid yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jewish, the Jews' preparation day for the sepulcher, for the sepulcher was near at hand. Meaning, the place of crucifixion was very near to the sepulcher, to the place of burial. It was very close. So when you stand in front of the uh, Damascus Gate, about 150 feet north, uh, uh, if you go by the way the crow flies, there's a street here, and then you go into a little walkaway about uh, 
15 feet wide, covered by walls on each side, and you come to a small door. And that's the garden tomb. And that's where is the place of burial. It is discussed and not accepted and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and confronted by the Catholic Church. But it's very hard because in that property, as you look about 100 feet toward the quarry, you're going to see the skull, the, the, the Galgata Calvary is on the right. And on the right, there is a road about another maybe 75 feet. And the road has, uh, 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 it's lower on the ground. And if you uh, take a picture of the topography of the area, uh, it rises, the topography rises at least 20, 30 feet high and the road is underneath. And so, and so someone in 1800s took a picture from here, looking at the camels coming down. And of course, we believe that's the place of crucifixion. And uh, Now, I don't want to talk about specific about that. But if you look at verse uh, 39, it says, And, also, and, there, also, there, all, and there came also Nicodemus. It's the King James, and I, I'm learning to work with it. Amen. So, these two get together. You know, an intellectual that came to Jesus by night and a wealthy Jew. And interesting about them is that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of, of, uh, of spices. 75 pounds is 75 pounds, you know. 100 pounds, uh, I want you to know... Uh, a hundred pounds is a hundred pounds. It's heavy. I can lift 50, 65, 70. But a hundred, you know, I do that with suitcases going to overseas in mission trips. You know, I have an arm that can go up to 70. But after that, it, it's impossible to, to, to not to struggle. So it's a lot of spices. A lot of myrrh. A lot of oils. And... uh now, the timing is important about these two men and what they did. And what I want to tell you is about the two men and what they did. Okay? And, and, and their heart. Uh, that's what the Bible study is all about. But I'm, I'm just uh, filling in with information so you can get prepared to, to get to know uh, uh, Joseph or Imatea and Nicodemus a little closer as we approach them. But uh, the timing is important because the, the, the Sabbath is about to approach. And uh, it begins at sundown. And they had to find a way to bury that body before sundown. And so it, it's, a, it's something in a hurry that was done properly. What was done? The burial had to be quickly. And if you look at the, at the, at the Egyptians, they would take the organs of the body out of the body. And they would take the blood out of the body and mummify it. But the Jewish concept uh, of, of burial, it, it's an act of charity, meaning that the, the dead cannot repay it. And uh, uh, the procedure is called tahan, tahara, T-A-H-A-R-A-H, whatever that pronounces, means to purify the body. And so the first thing that they had to do, they had to wash thoroughly. Now, I want you to think about this. They're there at the garden tomb. 
they're carrying the body of Jesus, perhaps on a mock or perhaps, uh, uh, I don't know how they carry it, but there's got to be a way to two men carry a body. Perhaps one holding the arms from the, from the back, the other one holding the legs. And, they, and, and if you look at the location of the crucifixion and the location of the garden, I agree with John, the sepulcher was near at hand. And so I'm talking about 75 feet of just grabbing the, the... How do they take the body from the cross? It's another thing. It must have been just a, an exercise. A, a ladder or some type of, uh, of, 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 of steps that uh, he would go and pull his hands out of the nails or take the nails... Someone had to hold the body from the back. The procedure was very, very messy. Because you see, uh, the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus were, uh, began to come out of His body at, at the place of, of judgment as He was uh, received 39 lashes. And so His back was bloody, his feet, his hands, his head with a crown of thorns. And so I'm just calling your attention not to the, to the situation that Jesus was involved in. I want you to see this man helping to get the body out of the cross. And it must have been very, very messy. And so the blood of Jesus got to, to their bodies also. Now just think about that. The body, the blood of Jesus, got all over Nicodemus and all over Joseph of Arimathea. These are wealthy, educated, sophisticated men. They knew what they were doing. They understood. They were talented. They were gifted in, in every area. But when it comes time to take that body out of the cross, and of course, I, I, I want to show you verse 40 of John 19, it says, Then took they the body of Jesus. They who? Nicodemus and Joseph Matthew. So it was near. They perhaps carried the body, holding the feet, and, hold, and, and I don't know what the strongest was. Uh, I, I, I'd say that Nicodemus uh, was the oldest. Joseph Arimathea was the youngest, so he took the, the, the chunk of the body and they moved up the lower the hill, lower the, the, the highway, uh, walked, and then climbed into the quarry. If you go to that facility today, the quarry is about 10, 15 feet from the ground. When you look down at the bus station, it's a good 10, 15 to 20 feet higher than the ground where the bus stop is today. And so they had to access the height of that, of that area to the quarry where the garden is. I've been thinking about that. I never, I never spent time with these two men, but, I, but uh, after I began to study this, it really impressed me on how they did it, how they got the job done. Because you see, what is the importance of Jesus being on a tomb? Very, very important. Very important because if they, if he was crucified in the normal way, 
and, and of course bury in the normal way. He'll be uh, he'll be uh, with the robbers, someplace somewhere else, unclean and filthy. They would not bury a person; just throw the body down there. And for some reason, the Lord God Almighty began to take care of His Son's body. And so, page one. Page two. These two were followers of Jesus. Watching the body. Now, I don't know, the body must be close to the sepulcher. There was a shroud, uh, a white shroud, not yellow, blue, or creek, but white. A piece of cloth that you would buy at one of those stores uh, in order to wrap around the body. But before that, this preparation of the body had to be thoroughly, thoroughly specific washing the body. And so they had to get water. Now, if you go to the garden tomb in Jerusalem, there is a, 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 uh, 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 oh, I don't know how to say it to you, but it's about uh, 50, 30 feet high, steps going down a well. It's empty today. A reservoir type of facility that when you look down, it, it looks like, uh, I'd say, 50 feet by, by, by 40. It's a big hole on the ground. And uh, uh, there's plenty of water there. And so they began to bathe the body of Jesus. Notice, washing was critically important before they would put the linen on top of the body. Wash it, cleaning. And of course, I, I must tell you that must have been an emotional experience to confront the body with water, cleansing, and then after the cleaning of the body, which has bruises everywhere, his face was disfigured, they had to wrap it on a clean shroud. Several times. Well, there's no exaggeration here. You know, I studied this and I found out that Herod the Great had 500 servants bringing spices. 500! I mean, when he was buried, he was top 3, 10, 15 feet high with spices all around him. And so, and so 75 pounds or 100 pounds for the Lord was an exaggeration. In Mark fifteen forty one, when Joseph approached the governor, Pilate, Pilate confirmed, but before he confirmed the release of the body, he called one of the soldiers and asked, as he died. Six hours on the cross, not only the cross brought damage to the body, but also what happened at the house of Caiaphas. The last night, of the Lord before the crucifixion and the judgment. That was a night in which every single one of those men in the Sanhedrin, except Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus, took a slap at Jesus. So what did these men do? And so I numbered, number it, because I, I just wanted to know, uh, bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in a tomb which had been 
hewn out of the rock. Roll a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. So when I, I think of the, all the actions that they did in a period of uh, three hours, it must have been hectic. It must have been very, very emotional. Very, very uh, convicting. Now, let me ask you this. Was there any power on that body? Well, on the body of uh, Elijah, a man fell on top of it that was supposed to be buried and came out and jumped and came alive again. I'm not saying the dead has any life in them. But I, I, I want to tell you that the men of God that I have experienced and lived and appreciated, uh, even their bones were righteous. When they bury my father, they uh, after uh, at the time of, that my mother was to be buried, we had to go into the ground, open the vault, open what's left of the casket, and remove the bones into another compartment. And I was there, and I remember that that man that went down and began to touch the bones, got very dizzy and had to come out and take a fresh air. And he asked me, oh, something, oh, something, oh, something. I don't know. And so he couldn't talk. So he gave him a glass of water, and I, me and Daniel are standing over the bones, and I told him, just let, uh, let you do it. The other guy went to do it and did it, put it into a small uh, uh, box, and my mother's body then was put on the side. Was the body of Jesus prepared correctly? Yes. Did they do a good job? Yes. Was it convicting? Yes. Page 3. In John 12, 24, it says this, Unless a grain of, of corn die, Jesus is saying this, it remained alone, it remaineth alone. But when it is dead, it bringeth forth much fruit. John 12, 24. And so the death of Jesus, the body of Jesus, is in a position of great power about to come to, to res resurrect the body. I'm not saying that it started as they were preparing. I'm not saying it started when he was in the grave. I believe it started when they were preparing for the burial. In other words, at the moment of death on the cross, when Jesus said it's finished, the Holy Spirit is on a clockwork. There's a clock ticking behind eternity. A clock is ticking behind the back walls of that place. A, wall, a, a clock is ticking uh, in heaven for the moment when Jesus will come out of the grave. There's a clock ticking about your life. What you do with it. How you serve the Lord. I went to see a lawyer yesterday to deal with my will. And it was an interesting meeting. Because this lawyer, David Durham from Atlanta, 
gifted man. Ooh, oh, that's a good lawyer. That's a powerful lawyer. And uh, you can see it in his face, David Durham from Atlanta, Georgia. He simply, simply loves Jesus. And we went into details. It was very, very, very convicting to tell the story of my life to this man for a period of 30 minutes, and he's taking notes. And so if my clock is ticking into what I am and who I am in Christ, the body of Jesus and the clock in heaven is ticking at the moment when he said it is finished. Now these two important people, two men, as a testimony to their faith, not only take to Christ from the, from the, from the cross at, at, at great hazard, but boldly carried to the grave. The wealth, the wealth of it was nothing to them. These two men are in the history of the world, in the history of Christianity. They are remembered for what they did. Page 4. Now Joseph landed his own grave. Nicodemus, 75 pounds of, of, of oils, an expensive deal. But 1938, John 1938 says, Being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews. So after the death of Jesus, most of the disciples were now they didn't know nowhere to be found. They disappeared. But at the moment these two men, previously afraid of the Jews, take charge and perform the service unequal to none, secure the body, something supernatural begins to happen inside of them. Both Nicodemus and Joseph struggled with open faith, but arrived to full confession in the presence of all people. You see, when you have an experience with Jesus, you don't have to really honestly go out and preach to everybody and just, and just uh, uh, it's obvious. It becomes obvious. In other words, it's with you. It's inside of you. It's who you are. Every time that I received a slap on the face or, or a rejection from a Methodist pastor, I understood that he has been bothered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Page 5. What makes a person to activate faith from dormancy to full confession? What makes you to do that? I have about, uh, about 10 minutes and I want to spend these 10 minutes trying to explain to you what happened inside of those two men. First, notice that the first thing that has to happen when a person comes out of dormancy or dormentos or, or sleepiness, or just uh, laziness, to full confession, is when intimacy changes. You see, it was very difficult to not to be intimate. You're talking about a body that's full of blood. You're talking about scars everywhere. You're talking about wounds everywhere. And that's more intimate than anything else. Look. 
Look, have you seen the body of a family member that you... I've seen the body of my father, and I got close to it. I didn't touch it. I simply just put my Bible on top of his body, and I prayed that whatever my father had in him would pass on to me. I did that. And the doctor who brought me to the morgue in the back was crying, and I led him to Jesus. So what I'm saying is, there is (laughs) in the body of a Christian man, a holy man, a presence. There is, in the body of Jesus, there was a presence. The clock in heaven is ticking. There's, there, there, he's on a clock to be resurrected from the moment he said it is finished. So what I'm saying is, let's take a look at Ephesians 1.15. I want to show you just something very brief. Ephesians 1.15. And it says, uh, let's begin verse 19 for a lack of time. And uh, uh, it's a prayer. That Paul is speaking. Wherefore also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and, and, and love unto all the saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of your names in my prayer. Then he goes, he goes verse 19. And what is the, uh, verse 18, The eyes of your enlightenment being enlightened, understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the works of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ. Who is He? The Holy Spirit, God the Father. Wrought in Christ what? From the moment that His body left the cross, and He said He's finished, the power of the Holy Spirit is wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him in His own right hand in the heavenly places. So what do you mean? That Jesus was set in the heavenly places after the resurrection. Yes, at the ascension. But before the ascension, the body of the living Christ is alive and empowered by a presence. Now, is the presence of Jesus during the three days alive? In many ways. It simply says He came to the to the to the place of hell in the depths of the earth and took the keys of life and death from Satan as Paul expresses that at those three days were days of great battles. So so intimacy begins when you come out of your personal grave of privacy. You know I've been in mission work for for 50 years. I've taken 280 trips overseas. I've seen people that were private Christians, but when they began to lay hands on people passing by on a on a tunnel and laying hands and anointing them with oil, out of the ashes of their own faith came life. They began to live. They began to breathe. They began to change. It happens every time we went anywhere. It happens every single time that we set up that line of, of 150, 60 people, our group of 30, 40, 50, along with their 50, and the congregation comes right through that tunnel, and we begin to lay hands and begin to pray, and begin, and suddenly you begin to sense that when they professed their intimacy in public, the, the, the miracle of Spiritual resurrection happened in their physical bodies. Intimacy. 
Number two, you experience the Holy Spirit. You know, three days of resurrection, and then you have another, I'd say, 40 days into the ascension, and then another 10 days in Pentecost. And so, I'd say that uh, the disciples experienced something very personal. Did Joseph of Arimathea, indeed, uh, uh, Nicodemus were present at Pentecost? Oh, sure. As a matter of fact, they were right there with John, Peter, and James, right together. Why? Because it's impossible for you to bury the Savior, hear about His resurrection, and not be at Pentecost. And the problem with the church today is that they will not go to Pentecost. They're afraid of it. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and it shall be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the world. In other words, it's impossible to preach Jesus without intimacy and experiencing the Holy Spirit. Finally, 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 page six. Number three, intimacy, experience the Holy Spirit, and experience conviction. Being under conviction. You see, it's an automatic work of the Holy Spirit to convict. In other words, if you have a sin in your life, it's going to bother the heck out of you. It's going to keep on bothering you. And that's, and, that's, and that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. But you've got to realize that God is after you. Look, conviction of sin is the number one signal that you are developing in faith. Conviction is the door to greater intimacy. Now, why is this ministry never ceases? I'm talking about 50 years of just going on and on into a very hostile environment. Why? It's because the Lord said to me, they need to be convicted. And don't you, and don't you, don't you be bothered as to how many, but thousands, literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands have been convicted. And that, that's worth a ministry. Let's take a look at John 13 for just a moment before we close. I thank you for staying with me, those of you who uh, stayed on this channel so far. And I bless you and I thank you. Don't go away yet. Let's go into, let's go into John 16 for just a moment. And I got five minutes, John. Five minutes. But let's take a look. John 16. He says this. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, number one, he will guide you into all truth. He will, not, he will not speak of himself, but whatever he shall hear, he shall speak. Meaning that the influence, the environment, the the suggestion, the induction, the penetration, the movement, the the presence of the Holy Spirit at the moment of preaching has to be recognized as an interference in what you are saying and, and how the Holy Spirit can say better than you. When you stop that interference, you become a rhetoric, empty vessel that God cannot use. Whatever He shall hear, He will speak. 
And then it says in verse 14, He shall... 14. He shall glorify me. What do you mean? The Holy Spirit glorifies, elevates, empowers, blesses, brags on it, speaks with authority, elevates, creates, regenerates, speaks openly of who Jesus has, what Jesus has done on the cross. So when you take the Holy Spirit out of the cross, you're talking about just a regular person dying, and Jesus wasn't regular. His body itself convicted two men as they washed it and prepared it for burial. And he said, He shall take what is mine and shall show it unto you. Now there's an interesting verse, which is, I think, uh, uh, the last one, uh, uh, and I want to read it to you right here real quick. I don't know where it is, but let me get to it real quick. It says, it says, In your heart shall rejoice. In your heart shall rejoice. Amen? It, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And you now therefore have sorrow. But I'll see you again. In your heart, shall, verse 22, shall rejoice. In your joy, no man takes it from you. Heavenly Father, as we come, Lord, I ask you that you bless my brothers and sisters anywhere they are today. By the power of the Holy Spirit of God, I pray, God, that you renew them, strengthen them this very morning. Remove the idea, God, that as they take communion, they're far away from Jesus. No, Lord, they're, they're so close to it. As, as they repeat the communion table and, and profess in remembrance of me. And this morning, Lord, in remembrance of him, Lord. In remembrance of Joseph Arimathea. In remembrance of Nicodemus who took care of our Lord's body. We rejoice, God, that we have great joy. Because you were working the resurrection in the body of Jesus from the moment he said it is finished. Bless every one of the brothers and sisters that are hearing. Empower them. Renew them. Remove sadness and fear, torment, agitation, stress, nervousness, and cause them to be servants of God, just like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of God, I pray and I believe. Amen. Senhor, eu vejo o mundo triste, atribulado pela ação de Satanás. Clamando no 
correndo e olhando para trás. E eu ouvi. 